This is a Reconstructionist Radio production. Please visit shalcedon.edu to download this book in PDF. The One and the Many by R.J. Rushjini. Copyright 1971-2007, Mark R. Rushjini. Shalcedon Ross House Books. Chapter 12. Autonomous Man and the New Order. Section 1. Descartes. The Hellenic form and matter dialectic had a continuing influence on Western thought as an undercurrent and rival to Christian thought. In René Descartes' 1596-1650, there was a scientific effort to avoid the dialectic by recourse to a dualism of two substances, mind and body. These two substances were to be kept in unity by still a third substance, God. Descartes was a devout Roman Catholic and believed that his work would undergird the faith. However, he approached the problems of philosophy not as a philosopher, but as a scientist. Although he is often classified as a rationalistic philosopher, his intention was scientific. His scientific credentials were good. In mathematics, he was the discoverer of analytical geometry and the first to represent powers by exponents. In physics, he stated that trigonometrical form, the principle of the refraction of light, explained the rainbow and weighed air. Truth, for Descartes, meant empirical science. How, then, could an empirical scientist be the fountainhead of modern philosophical rationalism? Cushman's comment on Descartes gives us the clue. Quote, the philosophical proclamation of Descartes was characteristically French, for he demanded the same return to an uncorrupted nature for the understanding that Rousseau, many years later, demanded for the heart. End quote. For Descartes, the mind of man is normative. Instead of holding, in terms of Christian faith, to a fallen man, corrupt in all his being, including his mind, Descartes has no provision for the fall in his philosophy and science. He begins and ends with the autonomous mind of man, an autonomous mind which is neither fallen nor corrupt. But the philosophy of Descartes is not without its contradictions. For Descartes, there are three substances, the self, God and matter. God is the primary substance, and matter and the self, or soul, or mind, are created, or relative substances. And God is very necessary to Descartes' system, because without God, the two worlds of mind and matter fall apart into a radical dualism. But necessary as God is to Descartes, God is neither scientifically nor rationally prior to the autonomous mind of man. Priority clearly belongs to the autonomous mind, to the uncorrupted and capable reason of man, hence Descartes' rationalism. But this autonomous mind must make contact with other minds, and also with that other world of substance, matter. To verify empirical knowledge, to give Descartes a valid epistemology, God becomes necessary. Autonomy and priority belong to the mind of man. Validation of knowledge belongs to God, who provides Descartes' system with a built-in insurance policy. Both empiricism and rationalism presuppose autonomous man. Their methodology in providing knowledge for this autonomous man varies, but in both cases the presupposition is the autonomous ability of man.
The quarrel between empiricism and rationalism is a family affair. They are together allies at war against a Christian epistemology. Descartes' purpose in his Discourse on Method, 1635-1637, to was scientific, not philosophical. This again is of particular importance. It was not with the logical analysis that philosophy renounced its own territory for science. Logical analysis and positivism generally renounced the historic disciplines of philosophy for a role as handmaiden to science. But with Descartes, philosophy began to rethink its grounds scientifically. For Descartes, philosophy had produced nothing but doubt. Quote, there is not a single matter within its sphere which is not still in dispute, and nothing, therefore, which is above doubt. End quote. Whereas science he saw as productive of verifiable knowledge, unless they borrow their principles from philosophy. In order to attain a valid scientific knowledge, Descartes swore as the valid method a studied rootlessness, the single design to strip oneself of all past beliefs. Descartes looked to logic, geometrical analysis and algebra for guidance and formulated a four-point method. The first was never to accept anything for true which I did not clearly know to be such, that is to say, carefully to avoid precipitancy and prejudice, and to compromise nothing more in my judgment than what was presented to my mind so clearly and distinctly as to exclude all ground of doubt. The second, to divide each of the, each of the difficulties under my examination into as many parts as possible and as might be necessary for its adequate solution. The third, to conduct my thoughts in such order that, by commencing with objects the simplest and easiest to know, I might ascend little by little, I might ascend by little and little, and, as it were, step by step, to the knowledge of the more complex, assigning in thought a certain order even to those objects which in their own nature do not stand in a relation of antecedence and sequence. And the last, in every case, to make enumerations so complete and reviews so general that I might be assured that nothing was omitted. End quote. In the first of these four points, Descartes' rationalism is apparent in the demand for clear and distinct ideas, but it is a rationalism linked to the scientific temper. Nothing is to be accepted unless it is fully and clearly understood. The next three points, 296 the one and the many, are directly linked to the new concern for science. Valid knowledge requires dissection, atomization, and an analysis in terms of dissection and atomization. These four points immediately limit true knowledge to that which the mind of man can clearly grasp and understand in terms of its own autonomous laws. Revelation is clearly excluded. God is also clearly excluded by implication, because who can fully and clearly grasp the idea of God? Or how can God be dissected and atomized into component parts for analysis by a scientist? But Descartes, in his system, clearly and distinctly needs God to link the two substances of mind and matter, and to provide a first cause. In this sense, God enters into Descartes' science, Later philosophers, on Descartes' premises, dropped the idea of God. Moreover, because as Descartes wrote, quote, I resolved to commence, therefore, 
with the examination of the simplest objects, end quote. The foundational facts for Descartes were the most elementary facts, not God, but the amoeba and the atom. In evolutionary terms, reality begins with the atom and works upwards. The key to understanding is thus not God, but the atom. It is not surprising that the new philosophy was usually more prone to favour the individual than society, and then the atom rather than man. Social atomism was extensively promoted, and there began the exaltation of the commonest man by aristocrats who, in daily life, despised the peasants they knew. The search for truth turned downward, and the atom came to outrank God. In the course of his search, Descartes formed a provisionary code of morals. Quote, the first was to obey the laws and customs of my country, adhering firmly to the faith which, by the grace of God, I had been educated from my childhood. End quote. The ground Descartes gave for adhering to Christian faith was expediency. Whatever his personal feelings, he expressed, his expressed ground was pragmatic. Quote, Although there are some, perhaps among the Persians and Chinese, as judicious as among ourselves, expediency seemed to dictate that I should regulate my practice conformably to the opinions of those with whom I should have to live. End quote. Next, said Descartes, quote, My second maxim was to be as firm and resolute in all my actions as I was able, and not to adhere less steadfastly to the most doubtful opinions, when once adopted, than if they had been highly certain. We ought to act according to what is most probable, and even although we shall not remark a greater probability in one opinion than another, we ought, notwithstanding, to choose one or the other, and afterwards consider it, in so far as it relates to practice, as no longer dubious, but manifestly true and certain, since the reason by which our choice has been determined is itself possessed of these qualities. End quote. Then, my third maxim was to endeavour always to conquer myself rather than fortune, and change my desires rather than the order of the world. There is more than pragmatism in evidence here. This is the scientific posture, the ostensible concern with working hypotheses rather than truth. The way was being paved for Comte's sociology. This general approach was already in evidence in Descartes' Rules for the Direction of the Mind, 1629. His Rule 6 called for the study of data from the simple to the complex, as did Rule 9 and others. The approach was clearly to be from atoms upward. But more was involved in the Cartesian methodology. St. Anselm said, I believe in order that I might understand. Descartes, to the contrary, held... I doubt, in order that I might understand. Although Descartes' proof of God from the idea of perfection has a superficial resemblance to that of St. Anselm, they are radically different. St. Anselm began with the autonomous God, Descartes with man's autonomous mind. In part four of the Discourse on Method, Descartes stated his well-known starting point, cogito ergo sum, I think, Therefore, I am the autonomous consciousness of man. Although both philosophical necessity and piety later led Descartes to introduce God, 
At the starting point, Descartes' concept of the mind is of an autonomous entity which, in its essence, is an independent thinking mind. Descartes defended this autonomy. Quote, the first objection is that it does not follow from the fact that the human mind reflecting on itself does not perceive itself to be other than a thing that thinks, that its nature or its essence consists only in its being a thing that thinks, in the sense that this word only excludes all other things which might also be supposed to pertain to the nature of the soul. To this objection I reply that it was not my intention in that place to exclude these in accordance with the order that looks to the truth of the matter, as to which I was not dealing, but only in accordance with the order of my thought, perception. Thus my meaning was that so far as I was aware, I knew nothing clearly as belonging to my essence, excepting that I was a thing that thinks, or a thing that has in itself the faculty of thinking. But I shall show hereafter how from the fact that I know no other thing which pertains to my essence, it follows that there is no other thing which really does belong to it. End quote. In his reply to the fourth set of objections, to his meditations, Descartes stressed the concept of mind as a complete substance. Thinking substance is a complete thing. He spoke also of the body as a separate substance. As Descartes noted in the seventh set of objections with the author's annotations, quote, I established also by reasoning the fact that these two things are substances really distinct from one another. One of these substances I called mind, the other body. And if my critic doesn't like these names, he can invent others and I shall not mind. End quote. Thus Descartes has two substances which must be linked but cannot, in and of themselves, be linked. For this linkage, God is necessary, so that a third substance is added to Descartes' science. Another reason requires that God be posited. Descartes had not abandoned the idea of casuality, of causality, which was still basic to science. Because of this scientific requirement, God was needed as a first cause, and to avoid regression into infinity, a perfect and necessary first cause was necessary. The God of Descartes' philosophy was not the God of Scripture, but the necessary God of Cartesian science. Thus, while the mind and the body were made derivative from God, it was a casual derivation which pointed ahead to deism, to an absentee God, who, having performed his scientific casual function, quietly retires to the sidelines to let man and nature take over. Here again, the argument for God's existence from the idea of perfection is radically different from Anselm's argument. Descartes' argument has a scientific function, to further scientific knowledge. Scientific knowledge. Anselm's argument is a philosophical exploration of a religious presupposition. Descartes gave to the mind an innate idea of God. This, again, is a, is a significant fact. The knowledge of God comes not from God's revelation, but from the mind's revelation of itself. Existentialism was thus assured a birth. The transcendental and absolute God could, on such a presupposition, be dropped in favour of an autonomous mind which is itself the God it innately knows and reveals. 
God was thus, in Descartes' system, a scientific presupposition, or perhaps simply a hypothesis, which, however necessary for the science of an age, could thereafter be discarded as having served its purpose. Descartes' analysis of God is a significant one. Quote, For in order to know the nature of God, whose existence has been established by the preceding reasonings, as far as my own nature permitted, I had only to consider in reference to all the properties of which I found in my mind some idea whether their possession was a mark of perfection, and I was assured that no one which indicated any imperfection was in him, and that none of the rest was a wanting. Thus I perceived that doubt, inconstancy, sadness, and such like, could not be found in God, since I myself would have been happy to be free from them. Besides, I had ideas of many sensible and corporeal things, for although I might suppose that I was dreaming, and all and that all which I was, or imagined, was false, I could not, nevertheless, deny that the ideas were, in reality, in my thoughts. But because I had already very clearly recognised in myself that the intelligent nature is distinct from the corporeal, and as I observed that all composition is an evidence of dependency, and that a state of dependency is manifestly a state of imperfection, I therefore determined that it could not be a perfection in God to be compounded of two natures, and that consequently he was not so compounded, but that if there were any bodies in the world, or even any intelligences, or other natures that were not wholly perfect, their existence depended on his power in such a way that they could not subsist without him for a single moment. End quote. There are a number of important assumptions and implications in this statement. First, for Descartes, God is one, of a single nature or substance. God is not a composition of mind and body, for all composition is an evidence of dependency. Since the intelligent nature is distinct from the corporeal, God has no body and is not matter. The implication, thus, is that, second, God is mind, a higher, uncreated mind than man, but still mind. For Descartes, there are three substances, mind, body, and God, and of these two, mind and God have something in common, intelligence. But third, as Cushman noted, with respect to the implications of consciousness for Descartes, quote, For Descartes, reality lies within the self, and the next question before him is how to get out of the self. End quote. Even more, quote, The existence of God is an implication of human consciousness. End quote. From this, it is not too great a step to calling God an aspect of human consciousness, to moving from an absolute God to an absolute man. Ultimately, the given of a philosophy, the presupposition of a viewpoint, is the total worldview of that philosophy. A philosophy beginning with the ontological trinity is a philosophy which is, by presupposition, inclusive of all that the triune God is and does. Similarly, a philosophy whose given, or presupposition, is the autonomous mind of man, finds itself either with no God and world, but only the mind of man, or else with a God and world which are merely aspects of the mind of man. The given is the total world of any philosophy and its comprehending order. Modern philosophy, having begun with Descartes' autonomous consciousness, has been driven to reducing reality to that autonomous consciousness.
Fourth, the influence of Descartes was very great and it made possible the strong reintroduction of pagan evolutionary concepts into Western culture. Descartes' philosophy was forbidden at Oxford, placed on the index by Rome and prescribed by the Calvinists of Holland, but it still reshaped the outlook of Western culture. As Cushman noted, quote, it spread over Europe in a somewhat similar way to the Darwinian evolution theory in modern times. Its success was immense. Many standard men rallied to its support, and everything before Descartes was considered to be antiquated. End quote. Descartes looked to the simple for the key, not to the complex, to the primitive, not the developed. The key to origins thus came to be sought downward, not upward, in the atom not in God. The acceptance of Cartesian premises made necessary finally the acceptance of social and biological evolution. Truth lay in dissection downward to the simplest component. Fifth, this all had great repercussions on the problem of the one and the many. Instead of a transcendental one and many, a purely imminent one and many was again enthroned. Moreover, because Descartes emphasised the autonomous consciousness of man and his scientific and social atom and as his given, the necessary emphasis of social philosophy came to be individualistic and atomistic. Man in society was seen as a prisoner in chains. Kings, powers and authorities had to be overthrown, as well as God and priestcraft, because Cartesianism had atomised the world. The imminent many, man, became the new ultimate of creation, and any form of unity of the one came to be seen as tyranny. But when the Cartesian autonomy of the many, of autonomous men, began to run into serious problems, the alternative now was simply an imminent one, a collection of autonomous men into an omnipotent state. Men and society have been reshaped by Descartes' philosophy. Section 2. John Locke John Locke, 1632-1704, in An Essay Concerning Human Understanding, laid down the basic principles of the Enlightenment which dominated philosophy through Kant's Critique of Pure Reason, which in turn has dominated philosophy ever since. Locke indeed has been called the father of the Enlightenment, and the fact of his personal piety cannot alter the implications of his philosophical premises. Cushman's comment is to the point, quote, The essay differs from any previous modern philosophical writing. Man, and not the universe, is the subject. For the first time we find an examination of the laws of mind, and not the laws of the universe. End quote. <coughs> man was now the centre of things, but Locke's free man emerged as a greatly reduced man. What appeared at first to men as a new Bible and a new hope for man soon came to be a startling problem, as man and man's knowledge began to show signs of following God into the limbo of oblivion created by the Enlightenment. To return to Locke, the mind of man, rather than the mind of God, was now the key to the universe. A few years earlier in England, the Westminster Confession had begun with the Scriptures, God's Word, and the eternal decree, God's plan, as the key to all things. 
the Confession had been approved in 1647 by the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland and ratified by Act of Parliament in 1649. By 1690, a new document, Locke's Essay, had come into existence as a, new, a kind of new confession and a standard for Enlightenment man. In Book 1, Chapter 1 of an essay concerning human understanding, titled Neither Principles Nor Ideas Are Innate, Locke denied that either the first principles of knowledge and science are innate or any other speculative maxims. The same is true of religious principles and moral rules. They are acquired, not innate, ideas. Conscience is no proof of any innate moral idea or rule. Men come to moral rules by experience and reason, or, quote, by their education, company, and customs of their country, which persuasion, however got, will serve to set conscience at work, which is nothing else but our own opinion or judgment of the moral rectitude and pravity of our own actions. And if conscience be a proof of innate principles, contraries may be innate principles, since some men with the same bent of conscience prosecute what others avoid. End quote. <clears throat> the idea of God is not innate either and is absent in many cultures, Locke stated. If the idea of God is not innate, then how can any idea be innate? Ideas, Locke held, are not a given factor, not innate to the mind, but rather a product of the mind and its thinking. He used his famous image, original probably with Aquinas, who used it before him by implication, of the mind as white paper, void of all characters, without any ideas, deriving its materials of reason and knowledge from experience, in that all our knowledge is founded, and from that it ultimately derives itself. The two fountains of knowledge are thus sensations and reflections, that is, our sensory experiences and our thinking about them. Some French followers of Locke reduced knowledge to sensations and the mind to a radical passivity. Those who defend Locke against the charge of passivity ascribe it to the French misinterpretations. Locke held to the power of the mind to reflect and to operate on its experience or sensations. This explanation does not absolve Locke's doctrine from the charge of passivity. The mind reacts rather than acts. Ideas are reflex phenomena, and Locke's very world is reflection. Locke plainly stated that, quote, The mind thinks in proportion to the matter it gets from experience to think about. And quoted later, I conceive that ideas in the understanding are coeval with sensation, which is such an impression or motion made in some part of the body as produces some perception in the understanding. End quote. <clears throat> Locke's universe was thus one of the individual minds without innate ideas, all receiving impressions or sensations, and then reflecting on them, a world in which the particulars are, primar are primary and central. Not surprisingly, great attention was therefore paid to the liberty of the particular or the individual, and one of Locke's most notable works was his A Letter Concerning Toleration, followed by the second and third letter concerning toleration. But Locke's world is not Hume's universe. Locke still assumed God as the one who gives unity and order to the world of sensations, 
so that Locke posited a one as counterbalance to his many. God is simply assumed by Locke as creator. The beginnings of deism are clearly apparent. A unified world of experience requires a creator whose basic function is to ensure the validity of experience. This judgment is somewhat unfair to Locke's personal faith and intentions, perhaps, but it is just to the practical outcome. Since Locke's concern is man, he is thus interested in man's happiness. Quote, what is it? What is it moves desire? I answer, happiness and that alone. End quote. Locke's man is thus implicitly good or wise in that he desires pleasure, not pain. Man the sinner, masochistic and sadistic, is not in Locke's world at this point or at any time. Locke's man is rational and sensible, even in egoism. The egoism of men, the particulars, thus produces the welfare of the whole, or the one, society. The foundations of laissez-faire were thus established. Quote, the necessity of pursuing true happiness is the foundation of liberty. As, therefore, the highest perfection of intellectual nature lies in a careful and constant pursuit of true and solid happiness, so the care of ourselves that we mistake not imaginary for real happiness is the necessary foundation of our liberty. End quote. Thus we have a correlation between the true happiness and the true liberty of man in terms of the egoism of man. In his own way, Locke was affirming the same doctrine as Leibniz, despite their real differences. Pre-established harmony. Leibniz objected to a hint of dualism in Locke, but they were together in assuming pre-established harmony. Briefly to summarise Locke's thinking in relation to the problem of the one and the many. First, for Locke, the particulars, the many, are prior, and these particulars are men. Second, in spite of their priority, these particulars are passive in their reaction to the natural world and the sensations derived from it. Book four of the essay, Of Knowledge and Probability, makes this quite clear. The mind, Locke said, is like a dark room, and sensory experiences are like windows letting light into that dark room from the natural world. Third, Locke posited a unified world of nature, created by God as formally required by his philosophy to make experience, and hence the ideas produced by experience, valid. The one was thus a formal but necessary addition to his system. Fourth, Locke's priority of the many made for a philosophy of individualism, or modern liberalism, but fifth, because his individual is a passive, determining agency, creating experience, determining agency, creating experience was necessary, and this the state, the enlightened despots of the age of reason, provided. The state became the imminent one, and liberalism moved from individualism by revolting against old authorities to statism by requiring a new one the imminent unity of the state. Section 3. Berkeley George Berkeley, 1685-1753, built on the foundation of Locke's empiricism. Although an empirical idealist rather than a materialist, he was still an empiricist. For him, as for Locke, all knowledge was derived from sense perception, and he accepted Locke's empirical psychology, 
Berkeley, in An Essay Toward a New Theory of Vision, 1709, took Locke's premises far out of the common road, as he observed, in his dedication to Sir John Percival. In this amazing document, written by Berkeley, written when Berkeley was only 24, Berkeley taught that all we see is our sensations. Quote, For all visible things are equally in the mind and take up no part of the external space. End quote. From this premise, Berkeley went on in 1710 to write his A Treatise Concerning the Principles of Human Knowledge Wherein the Chief Causes of Error and Difficulty in the Sciences within, with the Grounds of Skepticism, Atheism and Irreligion are Inquired Into. The full title is important in that it reveals Bishop Berkeley's religious concern. He became a bishop of Cloyne in Ireland in 1734, and he was a hard-working prelate. His purpose in this latter work is to teach that all that exists is knowledge. In Locke's system, God was the insurance agent who certified and guaranteed knowledge, but the real source of knowledge was the natural world. Berkeley saw the implications of this. Nature was preempting God's position, and he eliminated nature to retain God as the source of knowledge. Moreover, he recognised what Hume was later to develop, that a radical destruction of the possibility of knowledge was latent in Locke's empiricism. He wrote, quote, It is a hard thing to suppose that right deductions from true principles should ever end in consequences which cannot be maintained or made consistent. We should believe that God has dealt more bountifully with the sons of men than to give them a strong desire for that knowledge which he had placed quite out of their reach. End quote. The difficulties, he felt, are entirely owing to ourselves, that we have first raised a dust and then complained we cannot see. The creative mind of Locke, however passive, was ultimately man's only world, Berkeley recognised. The natural world was possibly no more than one of the mind's ideas or abstractions. In such a case, all that remains is Lockean man, the mind of man and his knowledge. It was important, therefore, to Berkeley to retain that knowledge, for his starting point was Lockean man, but to ascribe the source of that knowledge to God. Berkeley, amidst the Enlightenment confidence, saw its Achilles heel. Achilles heel. Quote, the ideas imprinted on the senses by the author of nature are called real things, and those excited in the imagination being less regular, vivid and constant, are more properly termed ideas or images of things, which they copy and represent. But then our sensations, be they never so vivid and distinct, are nevertheless ideas. That is, they exist in the mind or are perceived by it as truly the ideas of its own framing. The ideas of sense are allowed to have more reality in them, that is, to be more strong, orderly and coherent than the creatures of the mind, but this is no argument that they exist without the mind. They are also less dependent on the spirit or thinking substance which perceives them, in that they are excited by the will of another and more powerful spirit, yet, they are still, yet still they are ideas, and certainly no idea, whether faint or strong, can exist otherwise than in a mind perceiving it. End quote. Berkeley denied not the reality of knowledge, but the reality of matter as his solution. Quote, 
the only thing whose existence we deny is that which philosophers call matter or corporeal substance. End quote. The sun, moon, and stars still remained real for Berkeley, but not material, nor did he see the old materialistic conception of the world as necessary to science. Berkeley did not deny the reality of material objects, but he did deny that matter as substance existed behind or in those material objects. Material object exi objects existed apart from the mind of man in the mind of God. Locke's position was that a dualism existed of spiritual substance, the mind or soul of man, which is passive, and material substance, which is active. These two substances are linked by ideas in the mind, and their link is made possible and its veracity assured by positing God as their creator. Locke's position was thus clearly dualism, a new variation on a Greek theme. Berkeley recognised the danger in Locke's system while accepting it. He retained the spiritual substance, dropped material substance, and retained God as the linking power between ideas and reality, reality now being the mind of God. For both Locke and Berkeley, man is a soul and represents freedom as against nature, the world of necessity. Berkeley recognised that dualism was hostile to biblical faith. He failed, however, to overcome dualism because he began with Lockean man as his presupposition. The mind of man now had radical autonomy, which Berkeley and Hume after him only underscored. Because of man's autonomy, there was now a dualism between ideas and the process of knowing. Man was set apart from the world like a god, but unlike God, was not the creator of his world, and therefore could not comprehend the world as his idea and law order. Thus, man, by asserting his autonomy, asserted also a radical dualism between himself and reality, which could be overcome only, either by, only by either denying that reality or by making that reality a part of himself, his own idea. This step was later to be taken. Berkeley retained that reality Berkeley retained that reality by positing, quote, that eternal invisible mind which produces and sustains all things, end quote. God was Berkeley's one, but his many, the race of man, God was Berkeley's one, but his many, the race of man, was his true presupposition and starting point. Autonomous man needed God, not as saviour, but as his mainstay in epistemology to retain true knowledge. As a result, the given for Berkeley was the mind of man and man's ideas, not God. Section 4. Alexander Pope The primacy of man appeared extensively in the literature of the age. Thus, Alexander Pope, 1688-1744, in his An Essay on Man, wrote that what he called wrote what he called a general map of man. Pope's essay on man has been called superficial and half-digested philosophy, but it is important in its echoes of the age's thought. The chain, of being is, the chain of being concept was revived by Pope. This chain of being included God and man, as well as nature, in one common being. Quote, 
All are but parts of one stupendous whole, whose body nature is and God the soul. End quote. This unified world of being, therefore, has no four. It is normative and it is one. Quote, All nature is but art unknown to thee. All chance, direction, which thou canst not see. All discord, harmony, not understood. A partial evil, universal good. And, spite of pride, in erring reason's spite, one truth is clear, whatever is, is right. End quote. Infallibility was thus transferred from God to the entire chain of being. That which is, is inevitably right, because it is a part of that perfect whole. Man, thus, is not a sinner, he is, rightly as, he is right as he is. And because he represents a high point in the great chain of being, the proper study of mankind is man. Vice still existed in Pope's world by way of contradiction, but there was no fall, only an upward growth. The God within the mind guides man. The chain of love works to bring all the world together and upwards, but self-love works to fulfil the glorious purpose of the whole also. Pope concluded, Quote, I turned the tuneful art from sounds to things, from fancy to the heart, for wit's false mirror held up nature's light, showed erring pride, whatever is, is right. That reason, passion, answer, one great aim, that true self-love and social are the same, that virtue only makes our bliss below, and all our knowledge is ourselves to know. End quote. Pope's philosophical self-satisfaction and superficial optimism characterised much of the Enlightenment. With God simply an insurance agent, man was free to go his own way in a world where nothing can go wrong because whatever is, is right. Section 5. La Maitrie But not everyone could resist, in, not everyone could rest in this self-satisfaction. Julian Offray de La Maitrie 1709 to 1751, took the new philosophy and subjected it to an operation similar to that performed by Berkeley, except that La Maitrie dropped spiritual substance. He held to a great chain of being, entirely material or mechanistic, evolving upwards. Man is a machine and no other substance than matter exists. By this means, La Maitrie, far less profound or able, still did not succeed in avoiding Berkeley's problem. The dualism between ideas and the knowing process remained. La Maitrie chose to ignore God and to drop any spiritual substance. By this means, he solved his own desire to abolish a segment of reality, but he offered no solution to the problem of knowledge. Section 6. Hume David Hume, 1711-1776, carried the Enlightenment philosophy towards its logical conclusion in An Inquiry Concerning Human Understanding, 1748, a reworking of his earlier and fuller Treatise on Human Nature, written between 1734 and 1737 and published in 1739-1740. Hume did not deny material substance. He simply acted on the basic premise of the Enlightenment, that the autonomous mind of man deals with ideas and not reality, and held philosophy strictly to that fact. As a strict empiricist, 
Hume wiped out every factor incompatible with strict empiricism. Ideas are copies of impressions. There are no innate ideas, no direct knowledge of any material substance, nor of spiritual substance. There are simply impressions, and their fainter copy, the ideas. Quote, All ideas, especially abstract ones, are naturally faint and obscure. The mind has but a slender hold of them. They are apt to be confounded with other resembling ideas when we have often employed any term, though without a distinct meaning, we are apt to imagine it has a determinative a determinate idea annexed to it. On the contrary, all impressions, that is, all sensations, either outward or inward, are strong and vivid. End quote. Man, therefore, can affirm neither the reality of spiritual substance nor of material substance. All he has are impressions and ideas. Hume thus limited the known world to the mind of man with its impressions and ideas. Ideas are related to one another by the three laws of association. Resemblance, contiguity in time and space, and causation. But how are these laws derived from impressions, which must be the case, or else empiricism cannot be maintained. These three, resemblance, contiguity and causation, are the only, bounds, are the only bonds that unite our thoughts together. Contiguity association has to do with outer impressions and descriptive sciences, causation association with inner impressions and metaphysics, and resemblance association with inner impressions and mathematics. Because impressions continually conjoin, we believe in a necessary cause, that is, that water is wet and that fire will burn. Continual repetition of experienced impressions leads to the conclusion of necessity, but the necessity is in the mind, not in the outside world. Mathematics deals with resemblances within the mind and is thus valid unless it claims to be valid for an outside world. Contiguity association rests on a conclusion from the order and relationship of impressions, but any order can occur, so that there is at best a probability concept available, not a law concerning outside reality. Quote, there is certainly a probability which arises from a superiority of chances on any side. End quote. In Hume's strict empiricism, there is no place whatever for God and only a slim place for science in terms of probability concepts, not laws. There is no place either for the self of man as a spiritual substance. Instead of a self, there are only perceptions. Quote, I never can catch myself at any time with a perception, and never can observe anything but the perceptions. When my perceptions are removed for any time, as by sound sleep, so long am I insensible of myself and may truly be said not to exist. End quote. In view of these things, it is not surprising that Hume found less reason to believe in miracles than in a material world. Hume did not deny belief, he denied the validity of the objects of belief. As a result, he was ready to commend an ethics which furthered certain social qualities, and he thus laid the foundations for the utilitarian and the pragmatic ethics of later eras. Virtue for Hume was simply every quality of the mind which is useful or agreeable to the person himself or to others. In terms of his own definition, Hume was a moral man. 
Since Hume could give no objective validity to science, he could give none, of course, to God. For, as he noted, quote, While we cannot give a satisfactory reason why we believe, after a thousand experiments, that a stone will fall or fire burn, can we ever satisfy ourselves concerning any determination which we may form with regard to the origin of the worlds and the situation of nature from and to eternity? End quote. The, quote, only objects of the, of the abstract science or of demonstration are quantity and numbers, and all attempts to extend this more perfect species of knowledge beyond these bounds are mere sophistry and illusion. End quote. The only valid sciences are those of quantity and number, but this does not mean that these sciences reach an outside world. Thinking must be firmly rooted in impressions. If we reason a priori, anything may appear able to produce anything. The foundation of thinking about God is faith and divine revelation, and of ethics as grounded upon such a faith, the same must be said. Morality, like beauty, is really a question of taste. Hume concluded, quote, When we run over libraries, persuaded of these principles, what havoc must we, must we make? If we take in our hand any volume of divinity or school metaphysics, for instance, let us ask, does it contain any abstract reasoning concerning quantity or number? No. Does it contain any experimental reason, reasoning? Concerning matter of fact and existence? No. Commit it then to the flames, for it can contain nothing but sophistry and illusion. End quote. The humanistic faith of Hume thus ended as a principle of book burning. Hume rejected a priori thinking. He felt, but did he? There is an a priori assumption at the heart of Hume's system, the presupposition of the autonomy of the mind of man. This a priori characterises modern philosophy. It is at the heart of Descartes' I think, therefore I am. At the end, with Hume, this a priori is almost all that remains. The I of Descartes has been greatly reduced. It is no longer a soul, a spiritual substance. There is neither spiritual nor material substance, but only thinking. This thinking can be divided or must be, into two aspects, impressions and ideas, so that a dualism remains between ideas and the knowing process. There is no longer even a formal one, only the particulars, autonomous men, hence the individualism of Hume. The world of man is greatly reduced, however. Man is little more than a nexus of ideas. The world of nature is also reduced, it is now only a series of impressions. Freedom is associated with autonomous man, but how significant is the liberty of a mind without substance and without contact with anything else? Hume's world is one of a reduced particular and a reduced unity, and, like his world, Hume, was himself, Hume himself was a reduced man. Hume's application of his philosophy to politics is revealing. His politics was somewhat conservative, but his political philosophy was not. In his study of the original contract, Hume pointed out that there are basically two kinds of political philosophy. The first school traces civil government directly to God. 
the second to the consent of the people, assuming some kind of a regional social contract. Pragmatically, Hume saw virtues in both. Realistically, he saw no evidences for either origin in existing states. Quote, Almost all the governments which exist at present, or of which there remains any record in story, have been founded originally, either on usurpation or conquest or both, without any pretense of a fair consent or voluntary subjection of the people. End quote. This is very true, but is usurpation and conquest the truth of the matter, or is there a true order? Or is there no truth at all in any social order? Hume's answer is important. Quote, we shall only observe, before we conclude, that though an appeal to general opinion may justly, in the speculative sciences of metaphysics, natural philosophy, or astronomy, be deemed unfair and inconclusive, yet in all questions with regard to morals, as well as criticism, there is really no other standard by which any controversy can ever be decided. End quote. The inclusion of moral questions is of note. The truth of politics and morality is thus derived from general opinion. The humanism of such a philosophy is, of course, transparent. Hume's a priori is here also the autonomous-minded man. Because Hume's humanism was so radical, he was dubious of the social contract idea. It meant a binding law from the past. Similarly, Hume was sceptical of pure reason, it implied some kind of law and knowledge from the mind, basic and innate, within man. Hume's free, autonomous man has no ties on him from the past, and only the impressions of his own experience from the present. In one sense, this is a severe limitation and a very narrow world, but in another, within these narrow walls, man, bound by neither reason nor the past, is his own god, ruling in proud autonomy in a non-existent realm. Section 7. Rousseau. This world was the world of Jean-Jacques Rousseau, 1712 to 1778, who essentially denied natural law, was dubious of the social contract idea while using it, and strongly denied reason. The opening words of Rousseau's A Dissertation on the Origin and Foundations of the Inequality of Mankind are fitting for all his writings. It is of man that I have to speak. Better known is his first sentence in chapter 1 of the social contract. Quote, Man is born free, and everywhere he is in chains. End quote. <clears throat> How can a man be born free if he is in chains? Here an unresolved problem appears, much debated by scholars. Rousseau did not want to ascribe man's freedom to any source other than man, because he believed in man's autonomy. Thus, the state of nature is not entirely trusted by Rousseau. His confidence is in man, not nature. His trust in the will of man, and in social orders, in the general will of man. This concept of the general will clearly has led to the democratic totalitarianism of the French and Russian revolutions, of fascism and national socialism, and of democratic socialism. The general will of the people is sovereign, it is sovereign for all and is indivisible and inalienable. Since sovereignty is a theistic idea, to ascribe sovereignty to the general will is to make the locale of the general will the god of the order. 
Since infallibility is an aspect of the doctrine of God, it is not surprising that Rousseau ascribes a like doctrine to the general will. Quote, the general will is always right and ever tends to the public advantage. End quote. Not all deliberations of the people are inerrant. Quote, there is often considerable difference between the will of all and the general will. End quote. Thus, the general will and pure democracy are not equivalent. To avoid leading the will of all into errors alien to the general will, it is essential that there be no subsidiary groups within the state. The new inerrant God is thus, for Rousseau, the democratic state. It is the imminent and absolute one and many. And the particulars or individuals in that unity have no freedom to withstand the inerrant general will, the one. Rousseau was the hero of his day, despite his moral degeneracy, because he made man the moral centre and arbiter of the universe. Section 8. Immanuel Kant Immanuel Kant, 1724-1804, not only acknowledged his debt to Rousseau, but also hung Rousseau's picture on his study wall and declared that Rousseau was the Newton of the moral world. This moral primacy belonged to Rousseau because he had made man the new absolute of the universe. God might exist, and he might be a beautiful character, but he was no longer primary or even relevant in Rousseau's universe. Kant gave philosophical props to Rousseau's position. For Kant, God and all those unknown things in themselves are noumena, whose reality need neither be affirmed nor denied, and who are not a part of the realm of knowledge. Philosophy had worked to this point to eliminate the a priori. Now, with Kant, it was ready to introduce a new a priori. Since both spiritual and material substances had been eliminated from the realm of valid knowledge, and only the mind of autonomous man left, the a priori could now be relocated firmly in man's reasoning without any reference to God. Man could now have knowledge, but he did not need God for this new kind of Kantian knowledge. Kant's concern was, quote, a system based on no data except reason itself, and which therefore seeks, without resting on any fact, to unfold knowledge from its original germs. End quote. Kant thus sought a new foundation for knowledge, one neither dependent on spiritual or material substances, nor dependent either on God or on sense impressions as representations of things in themselves. Kant was working towards cutting the umbilical cord which bound man to God and the universe. Kant's new a priori involved a new conception of what is universally and necessarily true. Quote, pure mathematics, and especially pure geometry, can only have objective reality on condition that they refer to objects of sense. But in regard to the latter, the principle holds good that our sense representation is not a representation of things in themselves, but of the way in which they appear to us. Hence it follows that the propositions of geometry are not the result of a mere creation of our poetic imagination, and that therefore they cannot be referred, they cannot be referred with assurance to actual objects, but rather that they are necessarily valid of space, and consequently of all that may be found in space, because space is nothing else than the form of all external appearances. 
and it is this form alone in which objects of sense can be given. Sensibility, the form of which is the basis of geometry, is that upon which the possibility of external appearance depends. Therefore, these appearances can never contain anything but what geometry prescribes to them. It would be quite otherwise if the senses were so constituted as to represent objects as they are in themselves. For then it would not by any means follow from the conception of space, which with all its properties, properties serves to the geometer as an a priori foundation, together with what is thence inferred, must be so in nature. The space of the geometer would be considered a mere fiction, and it would not be credited with objective validity because we cannot see how things must of necessity agree with an image of them, which we make spontaneously and previous to our acquaintance with them. But if this image, or rather formal intuition, is the essential property of our sensibility, by means of which alone objects are given to us, and if this sensibility repre represents not things in themselves, but their appearances, we shall easily comprehend and at the same time indisputably prove that all external objects of our world of sense must, necessar must necessarily coincide in the most rigorous way with the propositions of geometry, because sensibility, by means of its forms of external intuition, viz. by space, the same with which the geometer is occupied, makes those objects at all possible as mere appearances." End quote. This remarkable passage, like every work of Kant's on knowledge, makes it clear that it was not Kant's concern to save knowledge. Rather, Kant followed after Hume in seeking the destruction of historic rationalism and empiricism, because they were still linked to God and to things in themselves. In their place, Kant sought to introduce a new kind of knowledge, together with a new kind of rationalism, as well as a new kind of empiricism. Space and time were for Kant mental realities rather than either illusions or objective realities. Quote, My doctrine of the idea of space and of time, therefore, far from reducing the whole sensible world to mere illusion, is the only means of securing the application of one of the most important cognitions, that which mathematics propounds a priori, to actual objects, and of preventing its being regarded as mere illusion. End quote. <clears throat> Kant thus espoused a transcendental or critical idealism. Quote, My idealism concerns not the existence of things, the doubting of which, however, constitutes idealism in the ordinary sense, since it never came into my head to doubt it, but it concerns the sensuous representation of things, to which space and time especially belong. And quoted later, it never came. Oh, sorry. End quote. It never came into my head to doubt the existence of things. Kant said. Then why the systematic separation of knowledge from things in themselves? Again, the answer is that God is bypassed thereby, and the autonomous mind of man is enthroned as the fountainhead of a new kind of knowledge and and science one which a priori rejects God insofar as any necessary connection to knowledge is concerned. Kant said that, therefore, quote, the understanding does not derive its laws a priori 
from, but prescribes them to, nature. End quote. For Calvin, God is the source and principle of the interpretation of all things. For Kant, the autonomous mind of man is the source and principle of the interpretation of all things and of the laws of being. A Kantian interpretation of religion is thus inescapably and radically humanistic. Having first replaced God with nature, Enlightenment man was now replacing nature with man. The old metaphysics was thus obsolete for Kant in the face of his critique, as alchemy is in relation to chemistry. A new objectivity was claimed by Kant, not what the mind of God has decreed, but what the mind of man reveals a priori as the objective truth. In Kant's words, quote, We shall be rendering a service to reason should we succeed in discovering the path upon which it can securely travel. End quote. This path must exclude God, of course, and reason's dependence on things in themselves. Where God is concerned, quote, I have found, therefore, it necessary to deny knowledge in order to make room for faith. End quote. Instead of being made complementaries, faith and knowledge are given separate domains, so that faith, by definition, is not grounded on, nor a form of, knowledge. Knowledge must be purged of God, and it must also be purged of any necessity of corresponding with objective reality, with things in themselves. Only then is it pure. Quote, if, therefore, we seek to discover how pure concepts of understanding are possible, we must inquire what are the a priori conditions upon which the possibility of experience rests, and which remains as its underlying ground when everything empirical is abstracted from appearances. A concept which universally and adequately expresses such formal and objective condition of experience would be entitled a pure concept of understanding. End quote. We are often told that Kant spoke to a crisis in the problem of knowledge. This is true, but not in the usual sense. The crisis was this. Is knowledge possible without God? Philosophy was trying to eliminate the God concept inherited from biblical theism, but not very successfully. The importance of Kant was that he gave a new answer to the problem. True knowledge was defined in terms which eliminated the old problem. God and all things in themselves were now irrelevant to man, whereas autonomous man was made totally relevant. Kant called his position transcendental philosophy because he held that man himself, by virtue of the universal rules of the autonomous mind, transcended himself, and man was able to escape the dilemma of verification of knowledge. Its advantage, quote, is due to the fact that it deals with concepts which have to relate to objects a priori, and the objective validity of which cannot therefore be demonstrated a posteriori, since that would mean the complete ignoring of their particular dignity, end quote. Kant thus turned philosophy upside down. Having freed the mind of God, Kant logically worked to man's to free man's morality from God also. This meant affirming the autonomy of the will by means of the concept of freedom. Freedom was presupposed, and the word is Kant's, a property of the will. The fundamental act of faith no longer has reference to God, but rather refers to man. As a result, the moral ought, the moral law, 
is now derived from man, not from God. The nature of moral issues was thus revolutionised by Kant. The generations which followed Kant may have been ignorant of his philosophy or even his name, but increasingly they reflected Kant's revolution. In a Stanford University sit-in, Friday, April 16, 1969, one speaker was per Paul Bernstein, a graduate student in political science from New York City. Striking a dramatic pose, naked to the waist and bearded, Bernstein declared, quote, We should not keep talking about anything, but we should look inward to ourselves. But it is not enough merely to look inward. The whole purpose of this movement has been not only to get us to look inward, to realise what our moral concerns are, but to call upon us not to sit with those moral concerns, but to take action, so that we can still respect ourselves as human beings. End quote. <coughs> what the Stanford students proudly believed was their young revolution was the tail end of an old revolutionary tradition which had a classic formulation in the hands of Immanuel Kant. We should look inward to ourselves, Bernstein said. Long before, Kant wrote, quote, It is a priori, morally, necessary to produce the summum bonum by freedom of will. End quote. In The Science of Right, Kant, therefore, defined the right in terms of man's autonomy rather than God's nature. Quote, Act externally in such a manner that the free exercise of thy will may be able to coexist with the freedom of all others, according to a universal law. End quote. Thus, when 20th century humanists defend the morality of any acts of perversion between consenting adults because no coercion is involved, they are reasoning from Kantian premises, logically and consistently. Kant eliminated from philosophy a transcendental one and many. Autonomous man was now his own lord and universe. As a result, the one and the many had to be relocated in history. This relocation was not utopian, it had no reference to a future order, but rather represented an ostensibly present reality. History, therefore, progressively was to become a clash between atomistic, anarchistic man and the totalitarian state, two rival gods alike at war with the triune god and with each other. Descartes' autonomous man still needed the props of spiritual and material substances, and God as well, but Kant's autonomous man needed none of these things, and indeed found them more than irrelevant. They presented a problem to the new knowledge rather than a need. Truth, for Descartes, meant empirical science. Truth, for the pragmatism of post-Kantian man, is what works, that which satisfies. Truth, defined by scripture as God the Son, now has come to mean the mind of man. The new one and many provided for post-Kantian man the principle of meaning. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows 
or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.